From the Theater Arts Program in the School of Performing Arts at Virginia Tech, I'm William Goblish, and this is Made of Story. We'd like to take a moment now to acknowledge the Tutelo and Monacan people, historical stewards and traditional custodians of the land now occupied by Virginia Tech, and recognize their continuing connection to the land, water, and air that Virginia Tech consumes. We pay respect to the Tutelo and Monacan nations, and to their elders past, present, and emerging. We also acknowledge the university's historical ties to the indentured and enslaved whose labors built this institution. We pay respect to these people for their contributions to Virginia Tech. Made of Story is a podcast featuring personal stories written and performed by Virginia Tech students. This episode consists of three stories, each about a time when it all fell apart. Quick disclaimer, some names have been changed to maintain privacy and confidentiality. Our first story comes from Andrew. Here's Andrew. It's March 10th, 2020, and I'm sitting in a diner in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a bunch of my friends from college. I'm eating what I can guarantee you is like the biggest plate of biscuits and gravy you've ever seen. We're in town with the Virginia Tech pep band to support our basketball team in a, what you could call a trip to the ACC tournament. We're in the hotel lobby and we're playing the fight song for the basketball team as they get on the bus. I can't really tell you why in that moment I felt nervous. After all, I was a music major. I was basically a professional, but I was. The team was getting on the bus. We were going to the game. I had to be there to support them. Pretty soon, we roll up to the arena. After a brief stint, basically sitting in a cage underneath the stadium, we're sitting courtside. The seats are absolutely wonderful but it's a really, really hostile crowd. There's not a Virginia Tech fan in sight. I'm sitting on my phone before the game and I see a headline come across that kind of catches my eye. Duke University, which is just a couple hours down the road from Greensboro, had just announced that their students weren't going back to school after spring break. Good thing I don't go to Duke, I said. I kind of just laughed it off and the game got going. The hostile crowd took over. VT loses big time. We're all super disappointed, super bummed out. I can't really help but feeling like I let the team down. I know that I didn't make them lose, but sometimes it's hard to not blame yourself for things like that. We come home, and my ride is late. I'm sitting in the parking lot for like half an hour, It's just me and the director. The director's a great guy. He's waiting on my ride to get there before he leaves, but 30 minutes is a long time. And he asks me if I want to ride. I say no. I'm good. He says, you sure? Yeah, I'm fine. See you after break. I never saw him after break. When I got home, I spent some time with my dad. He's my buddy, I consider him my friend, and I really missed him throughout the semester. 
he's a teacher and so he's always trying to teach me like life lessons and one of the ones he's always told me is that people are the best investment i've always kept that phrase really close to my heart and i like to consider it my motto i feel really lucky to work a job in customer service that i actually enjoy i really love being an uncle to my two beautiful nephews and my one beautiful and quite crazy niece it just makes me feel lucky to find my comfort in people. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel whole. It makes me feel kind of like my grandmother. My grandmother means a lot to me. She is not a very eloquent woman, but she is the picture-perfect definition of a sassy southern grandmother. She's the type of woman that when I walked into her condo at age 10, she would offer me a donut, I would eat the donut lovingly, and then, you know, wait for dinner, and if I didn't eat a second donut, she would be very, very concerned that something was wrong with me. And we were never really all that close. We would visit her maybe twice a year, and I never called her as much as I should have, but she knew me better than anyone else I've ever met before. And I've never really understood it, but I, I've come to realize that she understood me that way because my heart and her heart are one and the same. She knows my struggles. I love my grandmother. In the summer of 2019, I went down to Tennessee to see my younger cousin's high school graduation. We're in the Thompson Bowling Memorial Basketball Arena at the University of Tennessee, I'm pushing my grandmother's wheelchair across the stage, and I'm just really happy to spend time with her. It's one of the two times a year I get to see her, and we don't go out in public often anymore because she has trouble walking. So I'm soaking up the moment. There's a lot of stuff on my mind with school, but I don't think to bring it up. I never really tell my grandmother about this stuff, but especially not today. It's my cousin's day. After the graduation ceremony... I'm pushing my grandmother's wheelchair back out to her car, and when I let go, she grabs my hands, and she, she looks at me right in my eyes, and she gives me a really simple task. Make sure Andrew takes care of Andrew first. I always knew that my, my grandmother could see something in my eyes. Like I said, I, I never told her about my struggles, but she seemed to understand them Without any words coming out of my mouth, she could shoot me a glance and know exactly what was eating my heart. And that ability is, it's terrifying, but it's, it's love. That's knowing someone. She knew that I needed to hear those words. I don't know how she knew it, but she did. And they would go on to change my life. Soon after arriving back home from the ACC tournament game, I received some really difficult news. My grandmother was in the hospital. It wasn't looking very good. My dad was going down to Tennessee to see her, but we couldn't go with him. I told him to give us a call, update us whenever he could, and that if he needed us, we would be down there to help him. He needed our help, and we couldn't give him the support that he needed. I said goodbye to my grandmother on FaceTime with my dad about a week after he left. 
at this point, I'm two years into my college career and I'm not happy. I had loved music my whole life and I decided to pursue being a music teacher in college because I wanted to help others learn to love music like I did. And when I got to college, my education started focusing less on others and more about me challenging myself. And I really, really struggled with that. I never liked focusing on me. It hurt. It was scary. I barely got out of bed some days. I barely got to sleep some nights. It was this weird paradox that I still don't understand to this day. But all I know is that I was not okay. I felt like I owed something to the world and that all of this was going to be worth it. It's all part of the plan. When the summer rolled around and the sun started coming out and I'd struggled through my first season of virtual finals, which is about as fun as it sounds, I did a lot of really deep self-reflection. I thought that coming home and being able to like focus on my schoolwork without all the college stuff was going to allow me to focus on what I loved about music and it was my passion was just going to explode and it was going to be great. It was going to propel me through the rest of college. But that that's not what I found. I found that I woke up every day and instead of thinking about my next musical research paper, I was thinking about my grandmother. And yes, I was thinking about how much I missed her and how she used to almost force feed me donuts. But I was thinking about the way she looked at me in that parking lot. And I realized that Andrew wasn't taking care of Andrew. I had been falling out of love with music for years, and I was hiding from it. I couldn't do it anymore. It was impossible to hide from this. It was looking at me dead in the face, and my grandmother's words rang in my ears and told me, don't hide, you can't. Please don't hide. So I decided to make some really scary changes over the summer. I decided to change my major, which involved me having to tell my dad that I no longer wanted to do the same thing that he had done, which was a scary conversation to have, but my father supported me. I decided that I wanted to spend more time outside and do a bunch of things that I had been forgetting to do my whole life, like learn how to swim, which I did. Yes, I didn't know how to swim. Don't laugh. I, I just, I took care of myself. I got in the best shape of my life. I kind of got a tan. I made a lot of money. And while 2020 certainly wasn't an easy year for me or literally anyone else on this planet, I feel really lucky again to be able to say that I found out a lot about myself through this process. Andrew takes care of Andrew now and I breathe easier. I sleep really deeply. I have no trouble getting out of bed. And I laugh a lot more than I used to. I find it easier to smile these days. And in a weird way, even though she's gone, I feel a lot closer to my grandmother now than I ever have before. Our next story comes from Sarah. Content warning, this story contains strong language. Here's Sarah. On March 11, 2011, I woke up just like every other morning. I looked out my bedroom window that overlooked the Tokyo Bay. It was a beautiful day in Japan. 
I went through my day as usual, attending school and my after-school Sorbonne club meeting. I had just gotten situated in my seat and started doing my calculations on the ancient Japanese calculator when the room started to shake. I had experienced earthquakes before, but nothing like this. My teacher yelled for us to get under the desks and cover our heads. All that we could do was wait. We waited and waited and it wasn't stopping. It felt like it was on a roller coaster that was violently jolting me side to side. Books and furniture were falling all around me. The violent shaking lasted for the longest six minutes I've ever felt. At this point, we were all in a panic. Teachers ran up and down the halls yelling, Evacuate the building! We all rushed out of the school to the parking lot. Luckily, I lived in an apartment right next to the school, so I took off to find my mom. Once I got to her, she said, Sarah, we can't stay here. With that, I took my mom's hand and ran up to our principal, who was a family friend. He was trying to control the massive panic that all the children and teachers were in. There was absolutely no structure, just chaos. My mom told the principal that we needed to move away from the water, so he got everyone to start walking inwards towards the center of the base. We had only gotten to the other side of the school when the ground became very unstable. It was pitching and rolling to the point that it knocked us off our feet. It was like a scene out of a movie where everyone just falls to the ground. When the shaking stopped, we were all in shock, scared to move, so we just waited for something. We didn't know what for, but we just waited. The phone lines were down, so my mom couldn't get through to my dad. He was on deployment on board the flagship of the Pacific Fleet at the time. Luckily, the email system was still working, so he messaged my mom asking if we were okay. And she responded that we were fine. At this point, the thought of a possible tsunami wasn't on our minds. However, a few minutes later, she got another email from my dad saying, get the fuck to higher ground now. It turns out that my dad was watching the radar on the ship and he could see a massive 150-foot tsunami pummeling straight towards us. My mom quickly informed the others around us of what was happening, and we all set off sprinting to a hill in the center of the base where the TV tower stood. While running, the tsunami sirens echoed all around us throughout the entire base and city. My brother at the time was missing and my mother was in a panic to find him. My brother went to a friend's house after school that day, and when my mom went to get him, the family said he wasn't there. He had left to come find us. My mom started panicking even more, thinking that he went home to the apartment, which sat right next to the water. So my mom handed me off to a friend of hers to get me to the top of the hill, and she took off running towards the bay to find him. One of her friends that was driving the other way saw her running towards the bay and stopped her. Michelle Tahar had her kids in the car and was on her way to the hospital to find her husband when she found my mom. She asked her what she was doing and my mom just started crying, saying that Ryan was missing and he had probably gone back to the apartment. 
Mr. Hart made a quick decision and pulled my mom into her car. Risking her life and the lives of her children, she made a U-turn and sped off towards the bay. They found my brother walking all alone down the sidewalk towards the apartment, completely unaware of the danger that was about to happen. After they pulled him into the car, they sped back to the hill where they intercepted me at the top. About five hours into sitting on the hill, we saw a massive fireball across the Tokyo Bay, and shortly after, we heard the sonic boom. There were two giant mushroom cloud explosions across the bay, which later we found out were the oil refineries that had exploded. About an hour later, a torrential downpour of acid rain came through Yokosuka, causing all of us to panic because we had nowhere to go. The Fukushima power plant had also exploded, causing massive amounts of radiation to pollute the air and the rain. After the seventh hour, the base security came to inform us that the tsunami had not breached the bulkhead of the base, and that we were clear to return to our houses. Upon returning home, we were terrified of the damage that was caused by the earthquake. My mom had said that as she was leaving, she could hear things crashing down behind her. Luckily, the damage wasn't too bad. We actually had power and running water, unlike the rest of the country. The base generated its own power supply, while every other Japanese home was on the Fukushima power supply. However, the real horrors didn't start until we turned on the news. We saw the devastating results of the tsunami, and we just couldn't believe our eyes. On base, everything seemed normal. However, right outside the gates were the remnants of our beloved city. Bridges had collapsed, tunnels flooded, trains full of people were swept out into the ocean. Looking out of my window for the second time that day, I no longer saw the beautiful cityscape. I looked out into total darkness that night. The next two weeks consisted of over a thousand aftershock earthquakes and the nonstop echoes of the tsunami sirens. It soon became too dangerous for us to stay in the country because of the poisonous levels of radiation that filled the air. We weren't allowed to leave the house without wearing a mask and wearing thick clothes that covered our entire body. Evacuating meant leaving behind my friends, my beloved city, my hamster, and almost all of my possessions, other than what I could fit in a carry-on suitcase. Imagine packing up your entire life in one suitcase, knowing very well that you may never see any of your belongings again. Evacuating meant leaving behind what I had come to consider my home. Telling my story has been a real privilege, and an amazing way to pay tribute to the 10th anniversary of the 2011 Japanese earthquake and tsunami, as well as pay respect to the 20,000 people who lost their lives 10 years ago. Our final story comes from Delilah. Here's Delilah. It had always been a dream of mine to swim in college. One day, I got a call from one of my old club coaches who was now a college coach. Um, our relationship was never 
really great. It was always pretty rocky, but I thought he would be different, you know, since it had been three or four years. He had asked me to join this this team that he was trying to build, this dream. You know, it over the phone, it seemed like he had changed. So I said, yeah, why not? Uh, once I got on the team, I realized that the minority pool was very small. Um, it was mostly just white people. And at this time, I had also realized a lot of the judgment and the racism that happened, especially like in the school and, in, and around the swimmers as well. I, I worked really, really hard so that he could notice me, so that he could tell me, hey, good job, kiddo, or tell me to be better. Like, I... I realized like as time went on and as we trained that he really didn't change. We had a lot of differences, so he decided to put me with the assistant coach instead of him so we wouldn't argue as much because we were already arguing almost every day. The training was really hard, but I ended up being the second highest women's scorer, which I was really proud of. And it was something that I was really excited for because I realized that I actually had potential in the sport that I loved so much and that gave so much to me. It was like I was finally getting something back from something that I put so much work in. At the beginning like of our dual meet season, I would ask my coaches um, how I did in each race and, and how I could do better. But it was always, you know, good job, kid, or go get your towel and, and just wash off or whatever and, you know, go cool down and we'll talk to you about it later. And then they would either forget or they would say I could have been better. And then they would like push me aside so that they could watch someone else race. Um, when, you know, my head coach brought us in for our first meeting of sophomore year, this was before we started training. He didn't tell us what our practice would be, right? So he just said, you know, hey, we're going to do practice and it's going to be hard and we're going to work as a team and we're going to build the dream together. And I felt confident. I felt hype. I was like ready, you know, to to do what was asked of me to like it was like I wanted to you know, get his approval. Like I had been searching for his approval, you know. And and we were told, you know, to wear our running gear or whatever, so that's what we did. So we were running with our lane ropes, which were really really heavy. It was really freaking heavy. And we had to carry it on our shoulders. And it was like one person was behind the other and we had to pace um, how we were running because if one person was going faster, then everyone would have to go faster. And the training was like really hard. But when we were done, we had to carry the lane rope the same way that we had been carrying it previously. And we had to go and put it back like in the pool. And when we were running back boys that were in the front started going faster than the girls in the back and we had to go down like up and down like a lot of steps and so as we were going down the stairs the boys started going so fast so that you know we could get the practice over with and it was like 7 15 in the morning and we got to the point where we had to go down like six stairs and it was still dark and the lights didn't work in the pool because the pool was so freaking old and the boys went really fast down the stairs so then the girls had to go like equally as fast or not even faster. So we, I went down the stairs and I couldn't see the stair and I rolled my ankle and then I rolled my ankle again trying to compensate and then I, I hit my ankle on the pool deck which was concrete at the time because like I said the pool was old and um, I fell to the floor. And I remember, like, everybody just looking at me like, is she going to get up? <laughs> and, like, I I sat there and, like, I 
I cried, but like it wasn't like I was crying from like pain or anything. It was like I was crying because like I knew it was going to take time away from like I knew I hadn't peaked in my career yet. And I was like, I really just want to get better this season and, and be better, you know, for myself and, and, and for my coaches and for my team. And then I was on the floor and like nobody helped me up. And then my head coach just stepped on top of me and looked at me and said, watch where you're going. And I looked at him and I was like, how could you like say that to a swimmer that you were with? Like that, that you that you knew for years and, and I was in pain. Like it was so embarrassing. It was so traumatizing. And And I remember seeing my assistant coach running to me and he asked me if I was okay and, and I was like no like I'm I'm cursing I'm I'm screaming and and I'm not okay <laughs> like I'm not good so then like the team captains at the time helped me out and they put me on a chair on the pool deck and then my assistant coach sat directly in front of me and like started making jokes and told me that everything was going to be okay and that I was going to be fine and and that it wasn't going to be that big of a deal and I remember like sitting there and I was like this is like going to end my season. And I kept telling him like, I know that this is going to end my season. I don't know why, but I like, I know that this isn't going to be like a three week thing. So when I was in the ER, I remember like, I remember looking down at my ankle at the ER and realizing that it was the size of a baseball. And I, I just started crying again, like in the ER. <laughs> and my friend was like, you're going to be just fine. And and I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. The day after um, I went to the ER, my coaches, they had asked me when I would be able to get back in the pool and when I'd be able to start swimming again. They never asked me about my well-being, whether or not I was fine, like mentally. And they just told me, go to the athletic trainer every day and we'll keep tabs on you and whatever. But... um. Every once in a while, I would ask the trainer, like, hey, you know, did they reach out? And he'd be like, no, they never reached out to me. The only time they reached out was to ask when you were going to get back in the pool. My roommate at the time, she was really worried about me because I was always crying. <laughs> so she told me that it might be a really good idea to see the counselor at our school. I went to a few sessions and I realized that I had dug a hole that was too deep. And it felt like every day I was waking up and like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I, I, and it was like I wasn't even sleeping. It was like I was drowning and like I couldn't get any air. Um, sorry. So it became a nightly routine to cry. It seemed really normal. One night I went to the shower and I brought my shower caddy. And I remember my athletic trainer telling me to start rubbing my loofah on my scars so that my scar tissue wouldn't develop. So I just, you know, started doing that and I looked at my scars and my eyes started feeling really heavy. And then I just sobbed. I remember calling my mom and I told her, like, I needed to leave. I, I couldn't take it anymore. At the time... My parents knew the mental state that I was in, so they, like, checked on me every day. They called me all the time, and they came to visit me every weekend. And they said it was okay, that it was fine for me to come home. And, and that morning, um, when I decided 
that I, I wasn't going to be at school anymore. I went to tell my head coach that I was leaving. And um, he was walking towards a meeting. So he made me walk with him so that he wouldn't be late. When I told him how I was feeling, like everything, I told him like how I was feeling mentally, like physically, like, you know, how, like what was on my mind at the time and like everything. Um, he nodded. He was like, okay, like I get it. Cool. Good luck out there. Hope to see you next year. And if I don't, have a good life. After that meeting, I tried to call my therapist and the receptionist came on the phone for the for the office. And I asked to speak to my therapist and the receptionist asked if it was an emergency. And um, I started to just like cry and sob. And I told her, I was like, well, maybe, maybe it might be an emergency. <laughs> so she called me back and... Like, I told her I wanted to leave the school. I didn't want to be here anymore. And I, I, and then she told me, she was like, well, think about it. Like, you know, give it a week and maybe you'll change your mind. But I told her, I was like, I, I already made up my mind. I can't be here anymore. Like, I can't. Or else, like, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And she said that that was okay, but that I needed to, you know, get help when I went home. We were two weeks into the spring semester and I had left and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't even want to tell my roommate. And everybody had called me and asked me where I went. And I was like, I, I left. I couldn't take it anymore. After I transferred, I slowly but surely have started to see the light at the end of the tunnel for me. It's not really bright yet, but it's, it's there. Thank you to our storytellers in this episode, Andrew, Sarah, and Delilah. And thank you for listening to this very first episode of Made of Story. Take care. This episode was produced by William Goblish and Quinn Sipes. It was edited and engineered by Megan DePardo. Original music composed by Leslie Fontaine. Graphic design by Ben Kaner. Transcript coordinator Susie Young. And special thanks to Alan Sanders, Kate Murphy, and Natasha Staley.